This is a Shakespeare podcast, so let's start by reading some Shakespeare. Maybe it's hatred I spew. Maybe it's food for the spirit. Wait, is that Shakespeare? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director, and no, I'm not going to give you the answer right now, but you'll learn it in a second because, as you'll hear, asking the question, is that Shakespeare or is it hip-hop, is often the opening gambit that launches a conversation about poetry and prejudice for the British poet, rapper, and educator Kingsley James Daly, who goes by the stage name Ukala. Since 2009, under the auspices of his hip-hop Shakespeare company, Akala has been going to community centers, prisons, and schools in immigrant and underserved communities, using the tools of hip-hop to spread an understanding of the relevance of Shakespeare's poetry. How? Well, like this. Ducala works for the most part in the UK, but recently he was in Los Angeles and stepped into the studio to talk with us about his work. We call this podcast, The Poet's Pen Turns Them to Shapes. Ukala is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, part of me just wants you to rap for half an hour, <laughs> but, but let's talk a little bit first. Let's do it. Uh, I want to start by picking up on something you use at the beginning of mm -hmm. the presentations that you do, usually, and it's the, is it hip-hop or Shakespeare yep. bit? Yep. So, and for people who haven't heard it, you recite a passage, I gather, and you ask the audience, do they think it's hip-hop or do they think it's Shakespeare? Yeah. So, try me. Okay, I will do. Sleep is the cousin of death. Sleep is the cousin of death. Okay, I'm going to say that's not Shakespeare. Okay. And? And it isn't. It's Nas. Uh-huh. Nasia Jones. Well done. Uh, the second... It's Nas. It's Nas. It's okay, Nas. that it's Nas, I, yeah. I didn't know. Okay, yeah. cool. There is a, there is a, it has echoes of Hamlet. Um, you know, so some people get confused there. That's true. Um, I mean, it certainly could be Shakespeare. Oh, of, of course. Yeah. yeah, of course. Uh, the next one. Maybe it's hatred I spew. Maybe it's food for the spirit. Maybe it's hatred I spew. Well, spew is such a Shakespearean word, I think. But I'm going to say no again. I okay. don't think that's Shakespeare. Okay. I can't think. Well done. It's Eminem. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, next one we will go for. I was not born under a rhyming planet. Mm, I still don't recognize that line from Shakespeare. Okay. So you're going hip-hop again? I think so, yeah. Okay. That one's actually from Much Ado About Nothing. <gasps> Oh, it's no, right. well, there you go. It's I right. was not born under a rhyming planet. I was not born under a rhyming planet. Okay, um, file that one away. I am never. reckless what I do to spite the world. Also, I'm still going to go no Shakespeare. Okay, okay. It's Macbeth. Oh, <laughs> now I'm really striking out. That's all right. I mean, it's, li listen, I don't, I don't like to embarrass people, but we did a workshop, one of our launch workshops. Ian McKellen came, mm -hmm. and even he got a couple wrong. I mean, we've got 
hundreds of these that we do. The point is you're supposed to get them wrong, which, which we'll discuss in a minute. I'll do a couple more and then, and then we'll talk about what the point of the exercise is, I suppose. Well, that, 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 let's talk about that. Okay, so what is, what is the point? Well, it's to think about language, perception of language, uh, language out of context, uh, linguistic uh, techniques, metaphor, simile, alliteration, rhythm. Um, but, but mainly it's to challenge people's perceptions. The English language has not changed as much as people would like to believe. And actually 95% of all the words in Shakespeare's canon we still use. There's only 5% that are old words. And any good poet of any era employs similar themes and similar techniques. So the point is to just show you that once you remove the baggage of what you think Shakespeare's about and what you think hip-hop's about, that all of a sudden it becomes much more difficult to differentiate. Well, what, when you do that exercise then, what misperceptions do you find that people have? Do they say, oh, do they always think it can't possibly be Shakespeare because it sounds so modern? Um, sometimes, I mean, I deliberately, when, so when I designed this exercise, I deliberately obviously didn't pick sentences from Shakespeare with thine. Right, the, the halves you know, and the right. whatever. And obviously I deliberately picked rappers that were eloquent, rappers that were good, rappers that use, I mean, we've got a line in there where the RZA says, the most benevolent king communicates through your dreams. You know, we've got another line from the Wu-Tang Wu in particular, were one of my favorite groups growing up, where they say, judgment day cometh, conquer, it's war. People hear the word cometh, and it obviously naturally would assume it's, it's Shakespeare. But I think some of the perceptions are because of the way a lot of commercial modern hip hop is that basically it doesn't take much intelligence to be a rapper from people that don't know about hip hop. So it depends the audience. But actually, perceptions of Shakespeare can be problematic. I am one that I sometimes am critical of mainstream hip hop and the violence and the misogyny and whatever else. But at the same time, in Titus Andronicus, one guy gets a note of another guy, so he chops him up, puts him in a pie and feeds him to his enemy's parents. You know, If Biggie Smalls told a story like that, people would say, why is he glorifying violence? So we sanitize Elizabethan England quite a lot and project onto Elizabethan England this kind of sense of properness and the Elizabethan theatre that absolutely just didn't really exist at the time. Do you also run into this idea that, um, well, I can't even, I don't think any of the, the things that you're quoting to me could be Shakespeare, because I, I just don't even know Shakespeare. That people have a sense of who's allowed, or yeah. have a misperception or a bias mm -hmm. about who's allowed to know Shakespeare well enough to even identify it. Yeah, I mean, the politics of class, really, in, in the UK, even in a lot of Britain's former colonies, actually, there's less of an intimidation, ironically, towards Shakespeare than in the UK itself, where if you're in India, for example, you know, society where they have their own three millennia long tradition of, you know, literary history. People I worked with in India, even children from tougher backgrounds, were just like, Shakespeare, yeah, he's another writer. There was kind of a sense of we don't have to, you know, reverence St. Shakespeare. He's the greatest thing since sliced bread and he can only belong to the people at the top of the society. It's really interesting that UK Shakespeare has become a symbol in many ways of the British class system. And there's a perception that you have to be like basically as smart as Albert Einstein mm -hmm. to enjoy Shakespeare. To crack the code. Right. Mm -hmm. And the point is the guy wrote performance poetry and great stories that were about sex and violence and love. And well, tragedy. and that's the irony too. Shakespeare was, a, he wasn't the kind of guy who would know Shakespeare if... if in, in modern perception, I mean, he's not yeah, Oxbridge. That's really you know, he not wasn't, in class terms. Yeah, he, was, well, he yeah. wasn't from the bottom of the society. You know, he went to a grammar school. He wasn't, you know, top of the top. Uh, he became part of, 
the the elite in a way. He bought himself into right. it. Yeah. But also, I mean, the Elizabethan theatre itself was, you know, the Globe was on the south side next to the bear baiting and the prostitution. It wasn't allowed to be in the city because it wasn't considered proper by the religious establishment of the time. So I think, like I said, there's a lot of even received pronunciation. So for those uh, who don't know what that is, I'm going to do my BBC accent now. So when you turn on the BBC, you'll find that people speak like this. This is a totally manufactured way of speaking. It doesn't come from any region in England. This is heavily related to class. 99% of England doesn't actually talk that way. Yeah. So if you come to England, you'll hear more people that sound like me. Um, but that way of speaking received pronunciation, so-called Queen's English did not exist in Shakespeare's time. So even that in England, people think Shakespeare was posh, which again is a, you know, a, a statement of class and a statement of that way I was just talking. And so Shakespeare is related to that whole politics of the British class system. What, what's, what I find interesting about people's misperceptions, and this gets back to this relationship between hip hop and Shakespeare that you talk about, is that Shakespeare really was the original mashup artist yeah. as well. I mean, he was rewriting and of borrowing of and kind of the ultimate reinterpreter. Yeah, he was sampling other people's stories. Hamlet is not his story. Othello is not originally his story. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. He was like, I like this stuff. You know, Ovid, Plutarch, the Bible. Obviously, he added stuff that is incredibly original. But many, many, many of these stories are not original stories. Part of my job I think and part of our job with Hip Hop Shakespeare is to sort of undo this undue reverence and what I mean by that is he was a human being who was a great writer. Well we've been talking about a lot of these uh, misperceptions of, of Shakespeare but what are the common misperceptions of hip hop and you mentioned a few of them but uh, I, I do think it's interesting that a lot of people who don't know hip hop have this negative opinion of it yeah, well, without even knowing it. I mean, they think they know it. You know, they watch MTV and they see MTV's version of hip-hop culture, which is ironic given that, you know, Viacom is this massive big corporation. As someone who grew up listening to KRS-One and Lauren Hill and The Last Poets and Gil Scott Heron and that whole incredible tradition of the music of the African diaspora in America, um, for me, I, I never had that problem. The first person I saw give a lecture was KRS-One. So I never, ever had this sense that hip-hop was what I was seeing on the, just what I saw on the television. Um, and so I always recognized that hip hop had a range of expressions. So I don't have a problem with some of the negativity in hip hop I have a, or so-called. I have a problem with that being the only voice that cuts through and being seen as the dominant perception. And a lot of people still have the belief that that's all kind of hip hop has to contribute, has to say. Well, as you say, they, they haven't ever been exposed to this tradition of there's this you know bifurcation in hip-hop you have the commercial the mainstream hip-hop which is uh, commercialized and it's mainly uh, put out by these large corporations again mm -hmm. primarily historically probably white mm -hmm. owned yep. and operated uh, and then you have this tradition that you're talking about which comes and tell us a little bit more about that because it comes out of this the griot and the the, the, the drum circle that came out yeah. of the uh, African diaspora well I think one of the challenges we often have when interpreting the culture of the African diaspora is for a very long time, I think there's been a lot of great work done over the last half a century to repair, but still to some degree, because of the problems that many countries in Africa face today, we project those problems into the past in a time when they might not necessarily have existed. So, for example, Felipe Fernandez Armesto, the great you know, historian from Oxford University, he has a book called Millennium. In the 1400s, the main kingdom he speaks about in that book is the Empire of Mali. Mansa Musa I, the ruler of that kingdom, is, is, you know, many economists estimate the richest human of all time. Um, there are three quarters of a million books surviving in the University of Timbuktu, which was the main university in 
that kingdom, though there were free universities. So you have some, you know, highly sophisticated, centralized structures of government in early medieval West Africa. So the type of societies that West Africans came from to the Americas has often been oversimplified. You know, sometimes when I ask young people, for example, I say, where, you know, where does black American music come from? They say, slave music. And I get that point of reference, but it's a dangerous point of reference to think that people suddenly started making music under the condition of enslavement. They made music in spite of the condition of enslavement. And as um, if everything that came before it, it's just this blank slate. Precisely. And it's not always people's fault. That's the historical perception. So when we understand in Mali, for example, you have a character called the Griot, praise singer, you know, often on the payroll of the king, you know, wrote long poems, the most famous of which is the Malian Epic of Sunjata. A genealogist, a historian, a musician, they would actually go to school for 21 years, seven years for speech, seven years for musicianship, seven years for singing. So when you understand this context, when you understand the type of instrumentation in West Africa, it becomes much more easy to explain how these musical cultures were created in the Americas. Um, and so if we take, say, jazz and we bring it all the way up to hip-hop we talk about congo square uh french louisiana was one of the only places in the americas at that time where enslaved africans had a, a day off um and so people would gather there was a long tradition of gathering at congo square on a sunday and when we understand this griot tradition and the drums and call and response and african polyrhythms and everything that came before it we can literally plot a line through jazz and blues and gospel and reggae music in the caribbean up to hip-hop So we can play you the Golden Gate Quartet, who are a gospel quartet. You listen to a song like The Preacher and the Bear. You say, Lord, look here, you know you delivered old Daniel from a lion's den. And you delivered three Hebrew children from a fire furnace and then... And then you listen to Rapper's Delight. It's the same flow. So after school, I take a dip in the pool, which is really on the wall. I got a color TV so I can see the Knicks play basketball. Him and talk about checkbook, but it costs more money than a sucker. What we now call hip-hop. Really, the main thing that changed with hip-hop was the production technique, rather than the art of rhythmically rhyming over the beat of a drum. That had been going on for hundreds of years. You have a rap about this. Right? Yes, I do. But they never vanished, made it through the middle passage, never gave up the habit, passing on the stories and tradition so that we could have it. I saw it was clear as day, a griot trap beneath the deck, buried him and vomit up into his neck, lying shackled next to his younger sister, already dead or rotten corpse, don't even smell no more, cause he has lost the sense. Still we sung the song of the warrior, giving heart to all the others trapped, rebellion ready to start. That is art, that's poems that bleed, songs mold history. The greatest gift ever given, the true mystery. Even when the drum was outlawed on the plantation, she kept beating it and singing in secret and maintaining. I could see the start of the Haitians and revolution and what did they start it with? Yes, invocations and music I saw. Well, I mean, we're talking about the oral tradition. Yeah, and the other interesting thing when you when you consider what you're saying and drawing this line from uh, way back into the past is that anyone, even if you don't know any of this history, you can hear hip hop and you can immediately like get it or like it, you know, it can appeal to you. But kids and adults even often read Shakespeare before they see it, before they hear it. Which just seems so cockeyed. It's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, if I gave you Lauren Hill, The Mystery of Iniquity, one of the most complicated but brilliant raps ever. Spiritually amok, oblivious to the cause, prosperously bankrupt, blindly in the blind, guilty, never defined, filthy as swine, a generation pure in its own mind. You'd be like, forget it. Whereas if I play you Lauren Hill performing it on MTV Unplugged, immediately you're like, I didn't understand half the words. You know, if you're 12, how would you understand? The fact it's even called the mystery of iniquity or Rizza 12 Jewels. He's got a rap about physics, right? So sitting people down and forcing them to read Shakespeare, performance poetry, it has to be performance first. It has to be rhythm first. It has to be Was Simon. it performance first for you? Um, 
Yes, yes, it was because uh, my stepdad was the stage manager of, you know, to be crude, London's equivalent to the Apollo. There wasn't, we didn't actually program any Shakespeare in it. Um, but it meant that unlike most kids, you know, culturally we were very rich. And so it was a weird juxtaposition where I was probably exposed to more, a greater cultural offering than most rich kids in England. So when I came to Shakespeare, I was starting from a radically different point uh, to anyone in my class because I'd grown up with equally with the tradition of theatre and with the Jamaican sound system. Both my dad and my stepdad ran sound systems and hip-hop. This reminds me of this wonderful presentation that you do, which it shows the relationship between iambic pentameter and how it fits with hip-hop and the rhythmic relationship between mm -hmm. the two. Yeah, what we try to um, show young, young people or adults or anyone, I think as a songwriter for me, actually, any songwriter should be engaging with, with Shakespeare's work if you're interested, A, in lyricism, but B, in, in rhythm. Throughout his entire career, he was experimenting with different forms of rhythm. Most people know the iambic pentameter, but if you look at something like The Tempest, it's not in pentameter at all. It's all over the it's place. It's all over the place, yeah. So Ian describes it as jazz. It's literally all over the place, and that isn't an accident. Um, but what we look at, one of the things that's interesting about the iambic pentameter, anyone who's an MC will know that it's very difficult to write a verse that is transferable. So if you write a verse on a regular tempo sort of hip-hop beat, 70 to 90 BPM, it's very difficult to write the verse in such a way that it transfers onto what we in the UK call grime, which is 140 be beats per minute. One of the interesting things about the ambit pentameter is because of this very consistent 10-syllable structure, you can do exactly that. And you could take any verse of Shakespeare that's in iambic pentameter and you can put it on most regular 4-4 hip-hop and you can put it on most of what we call in the UK grime. It's a very transferable rhythm. So if someone, you know, if you're an artist who wants to write a verse that you can go into a cypher with and be confident that whatever beat the DJ puts on, you can flow with it, the, the pentameter is a great rhythm to do that. Awesome. Hit, hit us up. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's play the first beat. Uh, you'll you'll recognise this as Sonnet 18. Okay, listen, yo. So, Sonnet 18, listen, yo. Shout, I compare thee to a summer's day. Thou art my lovely, you're more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease have all too short a date. Sometimes too hot the eye of heaven shines And often is his gold complexion dimmed And every fair from fair some time declines By chance or nature's changing course untrimmed But thy eternal summer shall not fade Nor lose possession of the fair thou owest Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in a shade When in eternal lines to time thou growest So long as men can breathe and eyes can see So long lives this and this gives life to thee As men can breathe and eyes can see So long lives this and this gives life to thee Thank you <laughs> now you said even when you then change the rhythm, yeah, so it's I'll, fine. So I'll give you another example. Yo, listen. Shout, I compare thee to a summer's day. Thou art my lovely, you're more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of me, and summer's leaves have all too short a date. Sometimes too hot, thy have heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dim. And every fair from fair sometimes declines. By chance or nature, changing course untrimmed. But that eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of the fair thou owest. Nor should death brag the wanderest in a shade. When in eternal lines to time thou growest, so long as men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. As men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. Thank you. 
It has a d- very, very different, completely different atmosphere. Right, completely different yeah. atmosphere, completely different style of beat. Um, I mean, and a lot of this, even some of Shakespeare's most famous stuff, the opening of Romeo and Juliet, you know, two households both are like indignity. That is iambic. Some of the stuff that doesn't rhyme. So if, if artists want to learn how to make stuff rhythmic that doesn't rhyme, you think of Hamlet, what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and movement, how so express So what is admirable. it about iambic pentameter that does this? Um, it's, well, A, it's the rhythm of the human heart. Um, but it's the consistency, I think. So a standard bar of music, you know, four beats. And if you put a 10 over four, if you like, you kind of, if you can visualize it in that way, where you've got 10, think of it like hi-hats. Yeah, so if you've got a four bar beat, but you've got 10 clicks of the hi-hat across those four bars, that's sort of the way I would, or, or the way I would uh, visually insert what your voice is doing and what the syllables are doing rhythmically within the kind of pattern of the, of the drum structure. D- so if you take the sonnets, 154 sonnets, all 10 syllables each, all alternate rhyming, how difficult that is to do to make sense, to rhyme, to be semi-autobiographical and to put 10 syllables in every single line. That's not an easy feat. And Herculean if, task. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And so if, if, if poets today try and do that, it's like poetic mathematics. You know, you're, you're being poetic, but at the same time, you've put these very serious constraints on you but what the uh, iambic pentameter then gives you it makes it a lot easier to memorize and as we've now discovered we've now you know we can see that over modern music it's a pretty good uh, way for a person to learn how to flow and when you hear it sung same thing so in a lot so our last production as a company was of richard ii which was we did essentially a concept rock opera if you like think you know this is the hip-hop shakespeare Shakespeare company company. yeah we we did we did a production of richard ii which we're revamping and we'll go on tour soon but it was essentially a concept album with key passages from the text kept. Henry of Hereford and Eastern Derby am I who ready hair do stand in arms? Oh, weak, possess the speech, drop your sword and settle your qualms. Draw for your sword, or See to it, your knees beat and greet the ground, blow, surrender yourself to the floor. Draw for your sword, or See to it, your knees meet and greet the ground Bound, surrender yourself to the floor Mowbray, come, come, settle down Don't spit over your blood when you don't have a crown I'll leave you 26 pounds of your flesh on the ground You won't last the first round How can this run, Jester? But then the band and the actors, who are also rappers and singers Rewrote the rest of the story of Richard II as a collection of songs And even the portions of the Shakespearean text that they sung Sit perfectly over music because he wrote in this rhythm and because it's very musical. Well, you also do this um, interesting exercise. I, I saw some, a presentation of yours in India where you ask people to find the pocket of the rhythm in a yeah. Shakespeare passage. So what we do with that is we take five different verses and we play a beat, any kind of beat, and we... So not all of them are iambic. So, for example, if we take... Uh, the end of the tempest, releasing me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, an art to enchant, and my ending is that you can hear immediately that is not the same as shout, I compare thee to a summer's day. It doesn't have the same role to it. So we give people all different sorts of verses to show A, how versatile Shakespeare was and how much he experimented across his career, but to show that there's still a rhythm in it. And actually, it's a, it's a different challenge now. And I am at Pentameter is very easy to find the rhythm of because it's consistent whereas the stuff in the tempest is much more difficult and what about rhyme because you talk also in that presentation about how rhyme differs from place to place from language to language and and i've never thought about it that way that's kind of fascinating i think there's two points in there rhyme differs even in english so accent has changed so much 
you'll look at the end of a Shakespearean text and there'll be the word mood and blood. And you'll be like, why have that in the end? It's because it was mood and blood. Or loins and loins, which means loins and lines. There's lots of stuff that doesn't rhyme anymore because the accent of English has changed. One of the things I learned going all around the world and working with hip-hop artists in Brazil and Algeria and all sorts of different places. Um, in fact, one of my good, good friends is, is a legendary Brazilian rapper called MC Marichal. Spending time with him and hearing him rap in Brazilian Portuguese, I was like, the rhyme is not the same. What I would hear audibly as a rhyme in English isn't exactly what a rhyme is in Brazilian Portuguese. And that was really weird to me. It was the first time I realized, because we know this about music, right? If, you, if you're not an expert on jazz or on classical music, it can all sound the same until you get into it, right? Your ears literally don't have the vocabulary to understand it. You listen to Chinese music and be like, I can't tell it apart. Your ears and your brain literally are not yet trained to understand the vocabulary of that music. Well, what happens when you hear rappers rap in French or in Brazilian Portuguese or in, I went to Zimbabwe in Shona, you won't always be able to pick out the rhyme because hmm. actually the sounds that rhyme to a Brazilian Portuguese accent are not exactly what we perceive musically to be rhymes in English. And it was a really interesting thing that I kind of found and heard. And I was like, so people hear rhyme differently in different, in, in different languages. So you're talking about the work that you do with the Hip Hop Shakespeare Company. Indeed, yeah. What do you want the takeaway to be for, for your audience? I mean, I hear, I, I, I hear and I respect this message that yeah. Shakespeare is kind of the ultimate virtuosic yeah. hip-hop artist, that you really kind of see this connection between the two. But what do you want people to, to, um, to go home with? I think there's a lot of different things, and it depends where you are. You know, for us in the UK and perhaps to an extent here in America, um, I, I don't want people to feel culturally intimidated by something that they're told is is beyond them um oh, I the want, whole icon shakespeare sacred yeah, shakespeare and he, he is an icon myth. he is an icon and that's fine but bob marley's an icon no one feels intimidated by bob marley though for me it's that sense of cultural property of not being told you are x this doesn't belong to you it's for me well, this is a, this is politics yeah I mean, it's, this it's is, politi- 100%, yeah, who owns uh, culture 100 percent. and in the uk shakespeare is very very political i'm saying what nas rapped about was profound and incredible. I'm saying what RZA rapped about was, or Lauren Hill, or any of these great artists. To me, they are my Shakespeare's. They are my philosophers. They're the people who got me into history. Well, that's a really important and controversial point because there's this huge amount of skill required in that level of rap, right? Oh, and I think that's something that gets completely lost in a lot of, well, in, in kind of popular understanding of what hip hop is. Of course. I mean, you got to remember when blues was around. You know, in the UK, we have a paper called the Daily Mail, a favorite right wing paper. They called blues devil's music and they called it the Negro's Revenge. That's an actual quote from the Daily Mail. What was the popular perception of jazz when jazz was the dominant youth culture for black America? It was that it was low culture, that it came from the ghetto, that it was fake classical music, all this other stuff. Today, everyone's like, Charlie Parker, of course, he's a genius. Miles Davis, of course, he's a genius. It's similar with hip hop. If rapping was so easy we'd all be Nas, right? Or we'd all be KRS-One or we'd all be Lauren Hill. But the fact is to, similarly with Shakespeare's sonnets, to uh, take a coherent narrative, to rhyme it over the beat, to actually have flow and persona, like any art form is very, very difficult. And if, if you think of the millions of people all around the world, that rap, 
only a handful of them are actually genuinely incredible. Like playing, being a virtuoso classical pianist or playing violin or being a great actor. And so it's that. Um, I, I want people to take away the fact that culture is there to be enjoyed. It's not there to beat you over the head with. You don't have to like Shakespeare and you don't have to like hip hop either. But if you do like them, that's absolutely fine too. And you don't have to ask anyone's permission. And, and performance, you know, go, I think for me, culture is, has, un, un, I unapologetically uh, see culture as a tool for liberation, for people to come together to better human society. I think if you look at hip hop in particular, in London, the most diverse audience you'll ever see at any gig you ever go to, without question, will be at a hip-hop show. I remember Wu-Tang particularly was the first group that all the kids that listened to heavy metal... Oh, you went straight to Wu-Tang from Right? No, yes. it really, it, yeah. it, literally, before that... Because hip-hop in the UK for a long time was came to the kind of British Caribbean community via our cousins in New York. And before it became fully mainstream, you know, groups like the Wu-Tang and others, you know, m made it mainstream, but to a really credible audience. And that's what great culture does. It doesn't matter that it's from the projects of Staten Island. When you listen to Inspector Deck say abomatomically, Socrates, philosophies and hypotheses. Can't define how I be dropping these mockeries. Lyrically perform armed robbery. Flee with the lottery. I don't care who you are. You must know that this guy is clearly good at putting words together. Similarly with Shakespeare, if you watch the, Ro the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet or, you know, Lawrence Fishburne as a fellow, I mean, if you can't enjoy that, I, I would suggest that y there's something wrong with you, maybe, you know, it's... it's, it's well, maybe you've already a answered this question, yeah. but, you know, every age relates to Shakespeare in a different way. And it's yeah. the cliche to say that every age relates to Shakespeare. What a miracle. Uh, but it is still mysterious how that works. And since you look at Shakespeare through this lens of, of both politics and music, I'm curious what you think makes... Uh, Shakespeare's work timeless or relatable? Um, I think a number of things. The fact that he dealt with the flaws of humanity. You think of Shakespeare's best characters. You know, Othello is okay. Iago is the great character in that play. Yeah, he's no, do you know well, what I mean? Well, the horrible ones are the interesting right. ones. Tybalt yeah. is a great character, much better character than Romeo and, or Juliet, right? You think of full stuff. Shakespeare's characters are, the best ones, are all imperfect. In a way, the kind of more perfect characters if you like it's almost like he's poking fun at them because they're not that interesting they are quite bland they're a bit naive and and and, and it's for me it's this uh, ability to convey what is to be human the human frailties but these timeless characters more than even the plays themselves these the, they, they become real people if you like everyone has a perception of, of those characters and great stories that really are across culture that we see from every culture around the world certain uh, myth forms you know, the hero, the rise and fall, redemption, jealousy. So I think all of these big themes, all of these characters, obviously, you know, writing in English helped. I don't think we can divorce Shakespeare's global success from British imperialism. And if India colonised the world, would we be reading the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and these wonderful texts of Indian spirituality in the way that we read Shakespeare as universal human texts? Maybe, because they are bloody brilliant, lots of them. And and I unapologetically, I think in 400 years, people will look back on a Toni Morrison or a Gabriel Garcia Marquez or a lot of the great novelists, uh, Dodievsky, you know, uh, Beryl Breck. There's so many people we could look to who I think, given uh, a, an adequate length of time, will go into that canon. Even, even so you do the hip hop and Bertolt Brecht uh, company no I, I, don't, I don't think it has the same ring to it I don't think it has the same ring I don't think I don't, no definitely not I think there's something about Shakespeare as a brand but I think that comes as much from what has been written about him 
as as uh. what he wrote. He's become a global icon for a whole host of interconnected, complicated reasons. I do think they're partly just his brilliance, but I think they're also related to, you know, wider issues of politics and culture and all, all of that sort of stuff. Well, I'd love to hear your Dostoevsky rap, but yeah, but I'm going to content I myself with your Shakespeare yeah, ones. I don't, I, don't, I don't have a, do a, a Dostoevsky one, but it's all right. Coming soon, maybe. Who knows? Thank you so much. It no, was anytime. such a pleasure to no, talk with you. Absolute pleasure. No, thank you very much. Kingsley James Daly is better known as the rapper Akala. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. You can learn more about Akala's work at www.hiphopshakespeare.com. The Poet's Pen Turns Them to Shapes was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Joe Phillip at Covered PR, from Mariana Abduli, and from Ryan Pate at the Dub Room Studios in Los Angeles. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get this podcast from. It helps us to get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.